Good morning, everybody. So if you're new amongst us, we've been in, as Kathy alluded to, we've been in a series uh, called Praxis Apostoloi. That's the Greek title for the book called the Book of Acts or the Acts of the Apostles. And praxis is this idea of how does somebody that has kind of a blueprint, how do they put the blueprint into real life so you end up with a real outcome, a real building or whatever. And so the book of Acts is really about how the first Jesus followers as individuals and as, a, as communities, how they put into effect in the day-to-day life they lived in the Roman Empire, the words, the mission, and the relationship they had with Jesus. And so, uh, as you heard in, uh, from Kath, I have the privilege of kind of bringing the story to an end. And so our text today will come from chapter 28, the last chapter in the book of Acts. And uh, I've drawn out a couple of scriptures to highlight, but you can read the whole last chapter. And uh, so Luke, who is a traveling companion with Paul, who's writing this kind of biography history uh, of Acts, he tells us in verse 13, which we already looked at with Jonathan, but here we go, we'll pick it up there. From there we set sail, and we arrived at Regium. And on the following day, a wind came up from the south. And that day we reached Pideoli. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and so we came to Rome, we're told. Now, Pudioli is a 150-mile hike from Rome. But Luke anticipates this is our destiny. Now we've come to this port of Rome. He goes on, he says, The brothers and the sisters, that is, the believers in Rome, Jew and Gentile, the brothers and the sisters there had heard that we were coming, And so they traveled as far as the form of Appius and the three taverns. At the sight of these people, Paul gave thanks to God, for he was encouraged. Now, the marketplace of Appia on the Appian Way, the marketplace is 45 miles from Rome. And so we're told that people walked that far. They walked a third of the way to greet Paul who's under arrest of the Romans on the way up. You know, it kind of convicted me when I think sometimes, wow, you know, i got to drive 10 miles to church and back, you know? This is quite the layout of energy. But here, they were committed to one another. Verse 16. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Now, the way this would work is on four-hour rotation, there would always be a Roman soldier chained to Paul at the wrists. And you can see kind of the feel for it in the picture there that's taken from when Shirley and I went to the Church of St. Paul beyond the walls, which is in Rome, outside of Rome. And it's believed to be the death burial site of St. Paul. And Constantine built a church over it and dedicated it to the memory and the mission of St. Paul and Jesus, um, uh, the, the follower of Jesus. And so here's this guy who's always hooked to Roman soldiers, but he's allowed to have people come. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And we came to Rome, the end. 
At least for Luke, it was the end of the story. It was the end of the story that he'd set out to tell the most excellent Theophilus in the very beginning when we studied that in verse 1. He's told us how Jesus' communities and Jesus' people individually had lived out the good news that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and lived it out as communities in mission. And so we saw this story that starts in Jerusalem, and so it's Jerusalem to Rome. We saw this story that started out first with the Jews, and now it's gone into the heart of the Gentile world. We saw this story that starts out with Peter, and now we hear it end with Paul. But it's not really the end of the story. It's the end of Paul's active ministry that we're told about. It's not even the end of that. And so it's kind of the end of, the, uh, of an open ending, is what I meant to say. It's a kind of an open ending of a story. And it, what happens there is it reminds me of movies and TV programs I used to watch. You get to the end and you're on a cliffhanger. You're all ready to have it all resolve itself. And what do you get? To be continued. So I think this story is meant to be ended this way, not only because Luke's purpose of telling us from from Jerusalem to Rome, from Peter to Paul and all that stuff. But it's also because the story isn't over yet, neither for Paul nor for the communities of Jesus who seek and follow after him. To be continued. Well, what was the rest of Paul's story? Well, we do know quite a bit about the rest of Paul's story. We know from his own words, he writes a series of letters while he is imprisoned. He writes letters to the Philippians. He writes letters to a guy named Timothy in 1 and 2 Timothy. It's believed he wrote Colossians and Ephesians during this time. Who could think that you could be put in jail and have perhaps some of your most powerful influence for the rest of all time because you got stuck in a jail? Maybe that's why Paul knew that he wasn't a prisoner of Rome, that he was a prisoner because of his testimony to Christ. And he saw himself, this is good stuff, being chained to a Roman. And being able to write. So it's not the end of his story. We also know from the early uh, oral traditions of the church that end up being quoted by Eusebius, the historian, that it's not the end. And we'll talk about that end later. But what struck me when I was thinking about this is that Paul not only completes the mission of Jesus, which was to go and bear testimony to the Lord of the earth, as Caesar called himself, that he was to go to Rome. But more than that, in all that he suffered, in all of the things that he experienced, the deep, persistent, and assorted challenges of his life, physical, mental, emotional, all those things, not only did he survive them, but I think we could honestly say he flourished. And his mission flourished. According to wherever he was at, his mission was something that flourished. You know, sentence, I think we could say that Paul finished well and that Paul finished strong. Now, that's the rest of the story for Paul, but I'd like to use the remainder of the time to ask another question I think is our story. Did you all hear that? Okay. The question I want us to look at the modern question, the moment of our you know, here and now question, isn't what happened to Paul, it's what's the rest of our story? Now, I want to suggest some things that is true about our story. 
first thing is that this is absolutely, I am confident there will be no exceptions to this. All of us will finish our story. We may do it through death or we may do it through his return. But we will all come to an end of this present life of serving Christ in this present fallen world and being on mission with him. I think a second thing comes straight from it. The fact that all of us will finish our story grabs at this question, since each of us will finish and not all stories end the same, we have options. We have choices to make. We have an active life to live related to the question, how will I finish the Jesus story in my life? There was a professor that influenced me a lot years and years ago named Dr. J. Robert Clinton, and he was a Fuller professor and read a number of his books. He, he concentrated on the issue of leadership and maturity. And uh, as a very young Jesus person, I found that helpful, you know, the maturity part especially. Okay? And uh, he, did a, he did a study, a case history of over 900 leaders, some of them in the scripture stories and some of them not, and he was looking at various aspects of their life, but one of the things he touched on was how they finished. And you discover that they finish in different ways. Some of them failed to finish at all. They had started this race, but they never finished it. Think tortoise and hare story. Started well, did not finish. Think of the, the tragic story of Judas. Or in Paul's life, if you read 2 Timothy, in chapter 1 and verse 15, you hear about Phygelius and Homogenes who didn't finish the race. Sobering to think I could start, but I might not choose to finish. Then there are those who finish so-so. Those who failed to do what they could and should have done as they walked and as they aged. Those who could die, would die rather, with legitimate regrets. Biblically, think of Samson. Or think of the story of King Saul. Or think of the story of King Solomon. They may have finished, but it's such a so-so finish. Now, for some of you, if you picked up, you know, and I didn't do this on purpose, Samson, Saul, and Solomon, you might think there's a particular unique curse on S names for not finishing. So just in case you tend to go that way, you're not real confident, then think of Stephen as your contrast. We know how those three guys finished. Think about how Stephen Finished and he finished young, but he finished with the full measure of faith and love in Christ. And then there are those happy souls, thank goodness, who finish well. Those who kept the faith and those who were devoted to the end. Think of the prophets of the Old Testament. Think of John the Baptist. Think of Peter who we learned about in the beginning of Praxis. And think of Paul, who we see at the end. 
Think of those who finished strong. Those who could say with Jesus, who finished the strongest of all, I have finished. It is finished. So, it's for sure we all finish our stories, and it's a fact that we all have options and choices to engage in. Thirdly, ending well requires a vision. That is, ending well requires a marker. It requires something to say what I'm aiming for so I can say when I get there, it is finished. And to be able to say it's finished well. When I was young, my dad taught me how to mow straight lines with a mower with bad wheels. He also taught me how to rototill in straight lines in the garden. My dad, practical man that he was, kind of a jack of all trades, was quite wise in this, and probably any of you who have tried to do it, you know it too. You always line up with a reference point at the furthest end of the field or the lawn. And you fix your eyes on that spot. Don't look down. Don't look back. You look at the finish point. And it creates a straight line. Those who finish well, they have a reference point, an unyielding reference point by which they keep their eyes fixed on it. So I think it was a good question that came to my mind. What is my reference point? Is it a moving point? Or is it fixed? What is your reference point? What is the one thing that you can be able to say, that is what is the goal of the end of my life. Paul could say to Agrippa, Acts 26, we already studied this, when giving testimony, he tells about how at Damascus, on his way to Damascus on the Damascus road, that he encountered the living, resurrected Jesus. And the living, resurrected Jesus revealed to him Jesus' will, mission, and end point for Paul's life. And he can say to Agrippa, he says that he had not been disobedient to the revelation that came to him through the word of Jesus Christ. We who have the word can have this same sense that he has revealed to us the end of our story, the end of historic story, but not the end of his greater story. Quite early on in life, you know, I was about a 20-year-old, and of course, life's very confusing at that time of life period. And so, you know, I needed questions and I needed input that would help me have some clarity of what it meant to be a Jesus follower. I think we all need that. In fact, I think we might need to revisit that over and over in our lives to end well. What's my vision? What's the central thing that will shape Every aspect of my life, my life of the mind, my life of vision, my life of the heart, my life of the wallet, it will shape everything in my life throughout my life. So what's the vision? Quite early on in my life, 
as a Jesus follower, I was asked two questions or responded to two questions at a conference that were just super, super helpful to me. I find them helpful now. The first one, the speaker said that we were to envision the end of our story. That is to say, we wanted to talk about how we would end up. And so he gave out paper to all of us, and as a young believer, he said, okay, you got 20 minutes, write your obituary. Write what you want to have be said of you honestly at the end of your life. And then never forget that that's part of the goal. And so we did that. It was a little awkward and weird for 20-year-olds to be thinking about being dead, you know. But nevertheless, we did that. And we wanted to be able to say, this is what I wanted to honestly be said about me as a Jesus person. And then the speaker, a couple of sessions later, the closing session, he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Hand out another piece of paper, smaller, and he says, now I want you to write your tombstone epitaph. What do you want carved in marble that summates your life? And he gave us time to do that. That was harder. Mine is going to be a very large piece of marble I pulled through. <laughs> the problem of being somebody who lives by their mouth, nothing's easy. These exercises gave me clarity and what my life purpose was really to be all about. By saying that I wanted one of the texts of my epitaph was 2 Timothy 2.2, it gave me a focal point that is pressed my mind, pressed my emotion, pressed my will, and with the help of God, mostly a straight line in related to that. His grace is sufficient, Paul said. He will bring us to an end if we deeply choose it. Fourthly, ending well not only entails a vision, but it entails a persistent pursuit of it. Lots of people have wonderful visions of their life. You know, they're called wish dreams. That's not what a vision is biblical. A vision biblical is a conscious understanding of a fundamental fact of life that is going to come about. Paul, writing from prison to the Philippians under house arrest, tells the Philippian community, quote, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 14. Paul has the goal in sight as an old man. He's 65 years old or so at this time. He can state the desired outcome, to win the prize. Of course, it makes you wonder, well, what was the prize he wanted to win? He's describing somebody who wins an athletic contest. What is the prize? Is it the laurel crown from the Caesars? The affirmation and the accolades of, of the Caesar and the city? No, for Paul, the end of it all, is the goal to be reached, the thing to gain as a prize, is that he indeed would not only have eternal life in Christ Jesus, but that he would hear from Jesus, Jesus' own words from one of his parables. Enter in, good and faithful servant. Enter in. I saw an interview once 
where uh, uh, American Journalist was interviewing Billy Graham a bunch of years back. And uh, he asked him, he says, so, Dr. Graham, you know, what do you think Jesus will say to you when you show up? And Dr. Graham paused for a moment. He says, well, I hope that he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. To which the, uh, the, the reporter says, you hope? You hope you've spoken to more people about Jesus in the world than anybody ever in history. You hope? Dr. Graham's not presumptuous. And he has said, my race is not yet finished. So it was still the hope that drove him. But it was still not the accomplished fact of his life that he had finished well and strong. If we have a persistent goal to pursue, then it also means that we have a certain mentality that we need to embrace. And St. Paul instructs us on this again in this text. He says that we are to strive forward in this long race. Think marathon of life. We're running this marathon of Christ-centered life. And it requires that we be strong so that we can finish the, the race. Another author by the name of Howard Goodich uh, studied 246 religious leaders. They are all religious leaders who crashed and burned along the way. Some restored, some not. They were all people who knew Christ, but then fell in that knowledge in a profound way. In his studies, Goodrich found that there were four common markers in the lives of those who failed to finish well. In each case, they failed to persist in doing something that helps keep a person strong. Now, you can think about that in every area of life, can't you? What are the things that make students flunk out? What are the things that make, you know, marriages not be very helpful or wholesome and, and growing in strength over time? What is it that affects us? And Goodrich found these things. They're all negatives, but I'll give you the positive on the other side, okay? They had failed to persist in a consistent personal time with the Lord where they would reflect on his word, where they would uh, communicate in what we call prayer, where they would reflect in journaling, that kind of thing. What he's saying is they failed to keep a sacred space in their life. A sacred space where they got their primary orders, their primary understanding. That sacred space we read about when Jesus went away all by himself, and what does it do? It shapes him for his race and keeps him strong. Goody says the reason that they end up not creating sacred spaces is that they were so busy that they had no space to keep. They made bad choices. So I, I, I literally put my handwritten note, note to self, and I thought I'd just tell you my note to myself. Get a hold of your schedule, Brady. Get a hold of your life. And make sacred space. Paul did that. 
we know about his prayer life. We know about his reflective life. And his journals, they're called letters to us. Second, he discovered that those who failed to persist and end well, that they failed to persist in either establishing or maintaining meaningful relationships of openness, of confession, and what we call accountability. That is to say that these people in places of leadership failed to keep what they always would exhort all the rest of us to do. Have relationships that sharpen you in the kingdom of God and the word of Jesus. Have people around you who are chasing the same goal of finishing strong and finishing well. Have those who are with you do what we're told in the New Testament. Provoke you to love and the good deeds of the kingdom of Jesus. Shape your life by being shaped by other lives that have the same end reference. He says they failed to do that. Or they failed to either do it or to sustain it. So I put a note to myself again. Keep close, Brady, to those who love Jesus and who provoke me by their life of love for Jesus in the doing of his will. Now, I'm fortunate that as long as I keep Shirley close, I've got one. I've got Kim. I've got a few others. Keep people close and live openly with them. Third thing he discovered. People who failed failed to persist in guarding and disciplining their emotional desires. Most people didn't fail because intellectually they were overthrown. That can happen when you're younger. You go off in a professor or a teacher. You're just not equipped for some of the questions yet. and You have to have faith that the questions have answers. Okay? But here were older people, and they failed because they didn't watch their emotions. Now, in this case, 80% of them failed due to sexual failures or abuse. But there's all kinds of things that our emotions would lead us to that is not part of the end goal of being a Jesus follower. So I wrote a note to myself. Keep awake. Jesus said that a bunch of times. Be watchful and only obey those emotions that enhance godly love, true truth, and living faith. So I've got two things. I've got a garbage can and I've got an open door. Follow the emotions that lead me to the truth, to true love, godly love, and faithfulness, Brady. Get it on with those emotions and the rest, just put them in the trash compactor. Because they are not the feelings that God would have us obey. Uh, And don't try to get rid of them. Because the more you think about them, it's like that pink elephant thing. The more you think about it, the more it's in the room. No, fix your eyes on things lovely, good, noble, etc. And so, final thing that he discovered is that the people who failed, failed to persist in being realistic about themselves. Now, I think this is hard in, a, uh, in the idolatry of self-esteem movement in our culture. How can you be honest about yourself when you're told you're awesome? all the time. 
How, how can you do that? How can you do it when you say everybody should get the prize even if they don't finish the race? Because it might wound your self-esteem. No, there are things in my life that I have to get real about and be aware of. And one is, is that I, as a redeemed fallen being, have weaknesses and have vulnerabilities of temptation. If Jesus was tempted in every aspect of his life without sin, and I'm not him, I might just want to be in touch and realistic about it so I know how to combat in spiritual life those things that would seek to destroy or neutralize my love for Christ and my servant's service to his kingdom. So, those four. I want to add one more. It's close to Thanksgiving, yeah? He doesn't address this. I just wonder it. I wonder if they'd failed to retain a deep gratitude. Paul writes in Romans that knowing God, they did not worship Him and they were unthankful. Whoa! Maybe Thanksgiving is a daily event and we only kill the turkey on a certain day. Maybe the spirit of gratitude is essential to living out a successful finish in any endeavor this long in our lives. I have to remain thankful, which means I have to have space, which means I have to know what it is that's good and noble. And I also have to know the mercies and the grace of God in my life. I love the songs we sang today. They were full of vision and gratitude. You can also apply this to your teenage children. Yes? And to your mates. But remember, remember, you need to be aware. We're not perfect. Paul says, I'm not perfect yet, in that text we read, but this I do. I strive toward the fullness of the calling in Christ Jesus. I saw gratitude, by the way, in the side. In the back row, I was standing back there, and I saw a young dad while we were singing, Oh, how he loves us, looking into the car carrier that the little one was nestled in, singing, Oh, how he loves us. Loves us. Good job, Levi. Good job. Run that race with that little one well. Closing. I thought we should close where Paul closes, which is the last letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. He says this, and these are words of triumphant witness and of encouragement for us. He says, I'm already being poured out like the drink offering that's poured out in temple worship. My life is like a drink offering meant to be poured out. This is all said with kind of an elevated emotional positiveness in the Greek. Okay? I'm being poured out on the altar of God 
in honor and praise and glory of him. He goes on, he says, and the time for my departure is near. It's a picture of a boat being unhooked from the dock so they could go on its sailing journey. It's quite a beautiful vision. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. They're all in the finished tense. He's standing at the end of all these endeavors and saying, I have got to the end. And I think he would have said, hallelujah. He's a wrestler that fights the good fight. He's a racer, a marathon, a Greek marathoner. They ran the good race. He is Jesus. He, like Jesus, he has kept faithful. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. Not that little leafy thing that the, that the Caesars give, but the crown of righteousness, which the Lord himself, who is the righteous judge, award to me on that day. And not only to me, Here's Paul, this other-oriented being, always concerned for the communities of faith that he's pastoring. But not only for me, but also for all who have longed for his appearing. This is the last testimony Paul makes. He does write a few more words. But last testimony. Then we're told by Eusebius, and by the confessing church of the ages, that Paul, having been tried by the powers of Rome and having borne witness to the living, saving Christ, was condemned by Nero and was taken by guard outside the city. They didn't bury people inside the city walls at that time. On the road to Ostia, to the southwest, and there he was executed by beheading as a citizen of Rome. This is the same time period when Peter was taken and crucified because he was Jewish and asked to be crucified upside down. These two great men who put into practice, who lived praxis before us. But one final thought. Paul never thought he was a prisoner of Rome. He thought he was a prisoner because he had been gripped by the love of Christ. And Paul, while he was executed by Rome because of his sins against Rome, would have said, I am not a citizen of Rome. I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. Powerful. When I think about these things, I think about it more now that I'm older, to be quite honest, but how thankful for the early things. I think about what are my temptations, what are my vulnerabilities at my age now? A bunch of them are different. But there's always one that that roaring lion that Carlos spoke of, there's always one vulnerability. The vulnerability of keeping fixed on the mark of faithful love for the Christ who loved me. We're going to take communion in a moment. It's good because communion is supposed to feed us. Not our flesh, our spirit, and our will, our mind, and our emotions.
Communion is a place that we say over and over, I belong to you. I'm in you. You're my ark of safety. You will take me safely to the end. I dedicate myself to you. But I want to pray for us. And then, Carlo, if you and the team would come, they're going to sing a song to you. And during that time, you know, I just want everybody, including the servers, just to wait. Just allow the song and what you've heard to share to shape your mind and heart as you come forward. If you don't know Jesus, you go, oh, hold it, you know. Uh, you don't have to partake. Just watch. Watch the Jesus people living out praxis, living out the new life we found in Christ. If you have kids, it's for you as parents to guide them as to whether or not to proceed. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful for your servant, Paul, that you gave as a gift to the church. I'm so thankful that we can look at a long story of a man's long life and see him from the place of disordered passion and ignorant opposition to you to the place of fully, fully living in you. I thank you, Lord, for his words to the church through the ages. And I pray, Lord, that you'll continue to fill and feed us in the same way you filled and fed him. And we give you thanks. We give you gratitude. And we pray this to the Father and in the Spirit by your name saving Lord Jesus.